All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live with your hosts, Eric Rubosnik, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora, and Christine Leninger. All Over the Place, where the fun sanity never ends. All right, welcome back to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. I'm your host, Eric Pervosnik. With me, as always, Jim Culver. Marty, unfortunately, missing today. He's uh, He's got other, other professional things to be doing. And with us today, a man who uh, bills himself as half comedian, half philanthropist, the great Tom Dreesen. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. You're welcome. And by the way, I never billed myself as half what, not build uh, has described himself. Would that be better described? You even describe myself. Other people do that, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a comedian, first, last, and always. All right, very good. And you know, we we had Tom on the old uh, Radio Free Fredonia haunts. We had Tom on a couple of times, and since then, and I can see it in the background there, the Cubbies exercised their demons, and just wanted to say congratulations on that. I see the jersey and the coat and the jet. Uh, it's, you know. But, you know, as we say congratulations, or as I say congratulations, I'm an Indians fan, so please be gentle on me, okay? Well, you know I'm from Harvey, Illinois. And from Harvey, Illinois, one of the greatest athletes who ever lived, came from Harvey, Illinois. At age 24, he managed the Cleveland Indians. He played shortstop and managed the Cleveland Indians to a pennant in the World Series. His name is Lou Boudreau. And uh, so I, when I was a little boy, I used to root for Cleveland because Lou Boudreau. Again, any other year, I, I love that Cubbies team. I yeah, but uh, and Madden as manager, but you know, unfortunately, they was up against my team. Well, one team had to win that one, and I, I I joked that year that when I saw what was coming, that it couldn't happen because the Indians playing the Cubs, ninth inning, the the heavens will rend open, the four horsemen of the apocalypse will come out. And that did happen. Well, the four horsemen of the apocalypse didn't come up, but the rain starts coming down in the ninth inning. My phone blew up. I said, I told you, no one can win this World Series. It's Cleveland and in Chicago. Not going to happen. But the Cubbies did win. So, you know, congratulations on that. The city of Chicago. Our producer is beaming right now, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, there she goes. But uh, Chicago, great. But you know, tell us, you know, um, you know, you are, I mean, just even though you've been away from Chicago and been in L.A. and been all over the place, <laughs> You remain true to the city of Chicago. Just what is it about the the waters there in Chicago that just gets into somebody and keeps them loyal to the city? I don't know how others feel, but I'm a street kid. I, I don't have a degree from academia. I have a doctorate from the streets. You know, I, I shine shoes in taverns. I set things in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers, um, uh, you know, uh, to help feed my brothers and sisters. And none of this do I regret. But I grew up on the streets. And, you know, Chicago people are neighborhood people by and large. And so when you're from a neighborhood, you, you know, you root for, you know, sometimes you don't have anything to root for, you know, it, it's 40 below zero and a wind chill factor. And, and, you know, but, you know, you, you root for your Chicago Bears, you root for your Cubs. That's what neighborhood people are about. I, and I'll never forget uh, one of my favorite quotations um, was from uh, Frank Sinatra was um, a, a New York Times for some reason, I lost you guys. Are you guys still on the screen with me? Oh, no. We're, no, we're still oh, here. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're here. Uh, okay, there you are. Good. There we go. <laughs> we're focusing on you, Tom. <laughs> but, you know, uh, one time in, uh, we were having dinner in New York at, on West 57th Street, a place called Patsy's. Uh, Frank and I, we were in, in New York City working Radio City Music Hall. And afterward, we had dinner, and a New York Times guy walked by, and he was joking. He stopped and said to Frank, 
you know, why do you keep this guy Dreesen with you? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? He said, yeah, besides that. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And I always treasured that quote because that's how I always felt of myself. I'm a kid from the neighborhood, you know. I attended bar in the local neighborhood after I came out of the service. <laughs> Those kind of, that's what, to me, what Chicago was about was neighborhoods. That's the one disappointment I had when I came to Los Angeles. I didn't feel that sense of neighborhood anywhere in Los Angeles like I did in Chicago or Boston, you know. Or, or, well, I, I, but the nice thing about, you know, I, when I was living there, um, Joe Montaigne, he's got the uh, the Taste Chicago, the restaurant there in uh, in Burbank, Toluca Lake, whatever, however the city defines it. But I always like the Friday nights, you Chicago guys would all get there and hang out. And it just it, it, was, it was a fun. It was, it was it's just cool that, you know, the, the guys from the neighborhood, they, they, there may not be neighborhoods, but you made your own neighborhood there. Well, that we call it. We're hangout guys. I, yeah. I love to hang out, you know, and, and uh, comedians. After the show, what was the first thing we did? We go hang out when when we all started out years ago at the comedy store. After everybody did their set or at the improvisation, we'd find a restaurant like called Cafe and we'd go hang out. And when I toured with Frank, Frank loved to hang out. He never went to bed till the sun came up, you know. So he, you know, we, we hang out. And and same way with here with when Joe's wife had that place, she doesn't have it anymore. They sold it, but um, Tay Chicago, you know, it was a good place to go hang out in the neighborhood, like you're back in the neighborhood again, you know. Oh, Taste, Taste Chicago's gone? I, I leave town and everything goes to hell. That's <laughs> all because of you. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take the fall on this one. I well, you didn't happen after you left. Uh, you know, they, the fall and, and the beef sandwich sales dropped considerably, you know, and pizzas dropped considerably. It's, it's, it's true, folks. <laughs> uh, the, the, the deep dish there was phenomenal. And yeah, the, the, yeah. Well, rest in peace, Taste Chicago. Damn, that was it. Well, that that locate, but that that's a different story. That location that, that stayed there the longest of all the restaurants when I was living in Burbank. So, and and rest in peace, also hot diggity dog there on that corner. You should have well, your, yeah, like, like Tom just said, folks. I kept a lot of businesses in business, so it's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Right now, your bib is at half mast. You know. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to meet up later with the, with Christina Portillo's up there in. Uh, in Scottsdale, yeah, we'll keep it Chicago. <laughs> so, and uh, you, you you mentioned uh, the comedy store, like the, the old hangouts and everything. Uh, you know, back back in the day, and and still, and you just recently did uh, a, a motivational talk there, uh, the joy of stand up comedy and and how to get there. What inspired you to give that motivational talk? Well, first of all, for years I've given motivational talks for corporate America to universities, um, uh, keynote speaker at at some of the universities and. And high schools, even, um, you know, on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four points. I've been doing it for corporate America for years. And, and, and um, it's just a passion of mine. I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. Uh, and so I use those sciences when I was broke and down and out in Chicago. Um, it's a long story, but. I was with a comedy team, as you know, for six years. The team split up. I ended up on the West Coast with no place to go. My wife, um, my ex-wife, what's her name again? Oh, yeah, plaintiff. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> she wrote me a Dear John. I was out here on the West Coast. My kids are in Chicago with my wife. And and I was down in, on, on my rear end. I ended up, uh, I, I was house-sitting for someone, and then I could no longer do that. 
and I ended up in no place to go. I slept in an old Nash Rambler. It wasn't my car. It was up on blocks. The front seat came down. Uh, so I, I slept there every night for almost a month, hitchhiking every night up and down Sunset Boulevard to the comedy store, begging to work for free. And in those days, I started applying these sciences I read from books like The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. <clears throat> Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. And, uh, you know, all, the, all these W. Stone books and, and Norman Vincent Peale and so forth and so on. And I went from that sleeping in that abandoned car to all my dreams have come true, you know, um, to, to uh, appearing on The Tonight Show, which I, I visualized long before I was on it, you know, and, and doing it over 61 times. And, you know, just working in Vegas, all the things that I wanted to do, all my dreams have come true. I got my wife and kids came back. Um, you know, we stayed together for years. The kids were grown and we finally got a course. But uh, everything happened from using these sciences. So that's what I want to teach the comedians, the young comedians of today, that, um, you know, that, you know, you can accomplish these things no matter how bad things look for you at this at this time. You know, if this is your dream, if this is what you want to do. So I changed the motivation talk for that night just to the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. So many people in my industry, stand up comics, never enjoy this journey. They, even though they accomplish a great deal of success, you know, they never really enjoy the journey, you know. And that's what I what I try to teach them, you know, uh, the com young comedians of today. By the way, it was very successful. Uh, I've done it in, in Chicago. I've done it in uh, in uh, New York. I've done it in Philadelphia. I've done it here in L.A. a couple times. But the other night. It had a whole new audience, and, and they were really receptive and asked very good questions at the end of it all. But I love, again, that's my passion. I am a stand-up comedian first, last, and always, but I love motivating people. Uh, I, you know, I never really, I know this sounds like BS, I never really ever cared about being a star. Um, I love being a stand-up comedian, but I, I always hoped that somewhere in my life I could influence people to, to do better, to, you know, because... Again, I came from eight brothers and sisters living in a shack. Both parents were alcoholic at one time. My mom later quit drinking, but, um, you know, the, 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 uh, we had holes in our shoes. If you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. You know, I, uh, I came from the poorest of poor, but I was able to accomplish all these things through these sciences, you know, these motivational sciences that I, like, I love to pass on to well, it's going to sound like I'm sucking up now, but in all the years I was in L.A. and then when I, I was doing a little dabbling in stand-up and getting, getting to meet you and other people in, in that circle, you are absolutely the nicest and most helpful person in L.A. as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I, I'll always be grateful for the tips that you gave me and I watch you give other people. And uh, this latest thing at the uh, the comedy store with the uh, the motivational talk, uh, what were some of uh, the uh, the takeaways from uh, the people who were who attended? Any memorable uh, conversations you had afterward? It was interesting. Oh, a couple of things. One guy said, uh, uh, you know, I flew in from Utah. You know, <laughs> he flew in from Utah to come to L.A. to do it because he had seen me on a podcast, Tom Papa's podcast, talking about this particular event. And, but, you know, almost always young comedians, you know, want, you know um, give me some advice on stand-up comedy, you know. Uh, I'm new. I, I just started out. I've only been doing it a year. I've been doing it six months or whatever. And what advice would you give me? You know, and you know, and so I, I mean, I could I could talk for two hours on that subject. You know, but basically, 
if you want to be a stand-up comedian, start where you are. If you're in Toledo, start there. You know, work as often as you can. You know, get on stage every opportunity you can. If you if there are no comedy rooms where you're at and you can't get on, then volunteer for charities. Tell them you'll MC their charity and maybe do a joke or two while you're up there. You know, but get stage time. You know, that's key. As much say so, work as often as you can. If you would read the book *The Magic of Believing* or *The Power of Your Subconscious Mind* by Joseph Murphy, or *The Magic of Believing* by Claude Bristol. If you don't believe in yourself, how can you expect others to believe in you? Four, maybe realize no one is ever going to help you. Everybody starts out thinking that I'm going to get discovered. Somebody's going to walk into this room in Keokuk, Iowa, and see me, and I'm going to get discovered. You know, if it is to be, it's up to you. I have a sign on this desk right here. If it is to be. It's up to me. I put that on my desk 50 years ago. If it is to be, it's up to me. No one wants to represent you unless you can make money for them. We're in show business. That's two words, show mm -hmm. and business. You know, it, it, people will represent you when you can, they'll help market you when you can make money for them. So if it is to be, it's up to you. Get yourself an act. Put yourself one joke at a time till you build yourself a sellable act. And then five, don't ever quit if that's your dream. Uh, Bertram Russell once said, there are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have. <laughs> you know, that's my story. And there's a lot of other people's story that I've known in, in my life. But those are five keys that I would give them. Also, if you're a stand-up comedian, decide what kind of comedian you want to be. Study the masters. If you're going to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just study brain surgery. You'd go watch the brain surgeons operate. And you need to do that with comedians. You know, keep going to comedy room and watch all the comedians and see one that says, "Wow, that's the type of comedian I want to be." Either a monologist or, or someone who has a different stage persona. <clears throat> but watch those, those people that are on a stage that you want to be on. You know, and so you know, so study the masters and at every opportunity, if you can, talk to them, ask them questions, pull them aside. Successful people want you too to become successful. Small people will belittle your ambitions most of your life. Successful people want you too to become successful. So I said nine out of ten will answer your questions. One might be standoffish, uh, uh, maybe think they're too big a star to talk to you, or they may just be personally shy, you know, that they, they are socially shy. But ask them questions. And I tell them the story when I was a new comedian, I've been to business four months. In Chicago, I went to a place called Mr. Kelly's, was the premier room that you worked at if you made it in show business. And Mort Sal was appearing there. And at that time, he was a big stand-up comedian star on television and everything. I snuck back to his dressing room after the show, and I knocked on the door. I'd only been a comedian four months. And I was I'm sure his manager was going to answer and chase me away, but I took the chance. I knocked on the door. Mort Sal answered the door. No one was in the dressing room but him. I said, I'm a new comedian, Tom Beeson. Can I talk to you? And I asked you some questions. He said, yeah, sure, come on in. He kept me there for an hour and a half before his next show and answered all my questions and treated me like a peer. And I never forgot that. And I, I, I told the comedians, don't be afraid to ask another comedian, how do you get from A to B? You know, how did you get from A to B to C? You know, um, you know again, and, and I'll end it with this. Whenever you're going on stage, I try to tell them, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. You know, it's like like if you're, if you're a woman and your husband's a, a cook in the house, you're a woman stand-up comic, and he's cooking, and he says, we got 20 people out there in the living room, 
honey, go out there and tell them some of your funny stories. Dinner's not ready yet. And you walk out into the living room and you say, I'm so glad you're here. Dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes. But I got to tell you, this afternoon I went shopping or whatever. If you're a guy, you, you know, start out with telling about your childhood. It's a conversation, not a presentation. When you walk out on stage every night, this is our house. It's not their house. Most young comedians put the frame of mind, oh, my God, I'm invading this territory. This is everybody belongs there but me. I'm the stranger. No, no. They could do what you do. They'd be up here. They can't do what you do. That's why they're out there. So it's our house. So when you walk out there, keep that frame of mind. Oh, look who's in my living room. And you start your conversation. Yes, it's your act, but you have to make it look like it's not. That was a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> and a short question is something that I've, I'm not exactly known for. So this is good. I, the tables were turned on that one. I like it. And uh, Jim, I know you, you and I have talked about, uh, you know, in terms of the state of comedy today. Uh, did you want to throw throw anything out uh, Tom's way in that direction? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I understand that, you know, you, you and Tim Reed obviously got some hostile reception on your show back uh, back in the day. But uh, do you feel like that, like a show like Tim and Tom could even get made today with uh, in the current political climate? I probably, I, I, Tim and Tom, for those who do not know what you're talking about, who are listening, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. There was never one after us. Uh, we, we started in 1969. There were no comedy clubs in those days. So we worked with the affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. Keep in mind, 1969, that uh, the backdrop was the Vietnam War was raging. Students were protesting all over the United States, you know, and... and and, uh, and I, I had just gotten out of the service. Tim just got out of college. Um, you know, the race riots in every major city, including Harvey, Illinois, where I grew up at, my, my hometown in the south side of Chicago, one of the largest riots in the country. And America was in turmoil. And here we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Uh, we weren't preaching. You know, we were just trying to make people laugh together. Martin Luther King had been assassinated just a couple of years before. The Civil Rights Act was, was only five years that passed at passed in 64. America wasn't ready for this kind of integration at that time. You didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together in those days, let alone on the stage together. So we were an anomaly. And and, uh, and we, we performed anywhere there was racial tension. We performed in, in uh, 11 prisons in one year. We did three uh, times at the county jail. <clears throat> um, high schools, colleges, wherever there was racial tension, we would go. We didn't preach. We would just poke fun at the stereotypes of both sides. And and and, and not all of our act was about race. But, you know, we did other routines and stuff like that. But the mere fact that one was black and one was white, it became about race. So uh, we, once it, the, 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 the team finally split up, but yeah, we met with, you know, I think, you know, 5% of America did not want to see us succeed. You know, um, 95% probably did. We, we, we received, well, we, we eventually, we worked the Chitlin Circuit for years, all black clubs around the country, and then we worked the Playboy Circuit. Um, but America wasn't ready for us. They weren't ready for what we were doing. Now. And today, if we try to set up today, the politically correct police, whoever the hell they are, no one knows who they are. They're these people that sit in basements and type up stuff about how much they hate what you're doing. No one knows who they are. They don't have a, a, an office you can go to or a building go to and say, hey, can I argue my case? No, they just tell you what you, you're supposed to say that will please them. We right. have the First Amendment in this country. Thousands of men and women died so that we have the right 
freedom of speech. We can say whatever we want to say. We can't yell fire in a crowded theater. But that separates us from most places, especially most communist nations. We can say what we want to say. You don't have to listen to us. You can turn us off. You can walk out the door. You can ask for your money back. But you cannot tell people what they must say. Because once you do to start telling people what they must say, your next step is you're going to tell them what they must think. You know, and then we become a socialist, communist nation. Comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. You know, um, you know you, you, again, that today with the, you know, with the new movements, the woke movements and the Me Too movements, and, and the movements are coming out of everywhere, they can stifle comedians. Stand by, America. It's the beginning of the end. You know? And fortunately, we have people like Dave Chappelle and people like that that will speak out. Again, you don't have to like them. You know, um, you know, you don't have to go. Don't don't go see their shows. Don't don't if you don't. You know, but don't tell them what they must say. End of speech. You're here. I mean, I've, I've been sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go, 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 Jim. Go. Oh, I was going to say I've I've been a, a fan of Tim Reed's ever going back to when he was on WKRP and and uh, now that I know you've got a you've got a book about working with him, I'm I'm very much excited to read it. But uh, but in the meantime, can you can you kind of give me a general idea of what it was like to work with him? Uh, Tim is you know neither one of us ever wanted to be in show business. You know we were we were in the uh, in the civic group called the JCs. Tim had graduated from Norfolk State College and EI Dupont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. I was selling life insurance. I had a wife and three kids. He had a wife and two kids. We were in a civic group called the Junior Chamber of Commerce, the JCs. And I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had of getting the kids laughing and then planting the seeds to eighth graders. I wanted to get them before they went into high school. We found out later that many of those kids were already involved in drugs prior to going to high school. But the whole program was based on getting the kids laughing, playing music, and then planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. In, in our particular community. And the program became very successful. Uh, and uh, one day, a little eighth grade girl, as she uh, was walking out of the classroom, she looked at Tim and I and she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. Mm -hmm. A couple of days later, the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So, you know, we, we started, you know, w working on what we thought might be material. We didn't know how to write material. We didn't know any of that. So we were such babes. And, um, and we and we there were no comedy clubs, so we went to a jazz club one night and we bombed. And, you know, but the owner liked us and said, "We'll come back tomorrow night." And we came back the next night and we scored uh, real well. You know, and and that gave us the bug. And Tim is a he's a um, he was a a perfect. I was the right white guy to be in that act, and he was the right black guy to be in that act. You know, I grew up very poor, eight brothers and sisters, as I told you. I, I grew up in a predominantly black area. I played basketball on an all black basketball team. I played football and an all black football team of a learning guy. I, uh, you know, I, as you know, I later wrote a, I did an album in front of an all black audience called that white boy's crazy. Uh, but, and Tim was an only child from the South who had, had suffered a lot of different problems as, as a child, you know, but a college grad, I was a high school dropout. <laughs> Oftentimes we do a show, a morning show where they had a one camera and the host would be saying, sitting with us today is a comedy team. One of them, had eight brothers and sisters, grew up very poor on the south side of Chicago, and the camera would zoom to Tim. And they, <laughs> as an only child uh, from the south who uh, had a college degree, and the camera would zoom to me. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he, Tim, Tim he, I love him. He's like, he's like a brother to me. His children call me Uncle Tom, and they have ever since they were born, you know. 
And um, so that that is, you know, we just have a great relationship. They're, they're, we're working on a couple of things. There's a couple of, we wrote a book years ago called, uh, in 2005, called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. And then I recently wrote a book called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And there's Tim and Tom in, in both of those books and how it all began. And there's kind of talk now, maybe possibly someone doing a six hour mini series of what it was like in that era, 1969 to 1975, to tour the nation, North and South, as the first black and white comedy team. Another long answer to a short question. So who, who's developing that? Because that is definitely something I would want to see. We're, we're or know, still kind of hush hush is just as the, the groundwork is, the, the seeds have been planted. I'm, 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 they're doing a documentary on my life from the book. Okay. A couple guys producing it. And from that, there's going to be a large segment of Tim and Tom in the documentary. And then, you know, the, there's talk about Netflix and people like that. Okay. We have people that are interested, you know, or that appear to be interested in. Well, I've, read both, I've read both books. You're an amazing storyteller, and you're also an amazing and avid golfer. Yeah. And, you know, so for all the pro and is the Tom Dreesen Celebrity Classic still going on? No, they're talking about renewing it again. I did that for 30 years, and, you know, I, 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 I toured on the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below, which was a great tour. It was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. We had 42 Hall of Famers, show business, Jack Wagner, me, Eddie Marinero, Smokey Robinson, Frankie Avalon. Anyhow, it was, it was I, I played, I golfed myself out to the point where I, I don't want to do any more tournaments. I, <laughs> I played in the Bob Hope Classic for 30-something years. I emceed and I played in the AT&T for 22 years. Now I just want to play with my buddies who yesterday took me to the cleaners because I... <laughs> Well, I know my, my, my dad drove you around at uh, one of the Jamie Farr Toledo Golf Classics. Did he read it? Uh, yeah, long ago and said you're, again, super nice guy. And so I'm, I'm glad you're able to get over there to the, the Highland Meadows Golf Club to uh, to work the Jamie Farr. But uh, now what, what are some of your uh, favorite hit, through the years, some hidden gems that people uh, might want to know to golf at? What are my favorite, what'd you say? So, some of your hidden gems, some of your favorite courses that people might not know about. I mean, because you've done, you've done the, the Pebble Beach and all that. Everyone knows those, but some gems maybe some hidden ones to, to me the one i always like was edgewood and lake tahoe it was it was like every hole looks like it should be on a postcard mm. it's a great golf course on the lake it's, it, that, that was one of my favorite golf courses of all time you know, I, obviously you know you can always say pebble you know pebble beach you know but when i was you know a bartender when i came on the service i would watch those golf tournaments you know uh, the bob hope classic and the and the, and the at&t and I never thought that I'd ever, I, I used to tell my buddies in the bar, because I'm an ex-caddy, you know, I, the guys said caddy, I said, hey, well, we should go there and try to caddy for, not for the pros, of course, but caddy for the amateurs just to be in that environment. And then one day, flash forward, I'm teeing off at the Bob Hope Classic. <laughs> um, uh, at the, at the, it, was, it was sometimes it was like surreal for me, you know. But, but again, in, in the bars, you know, when I was closing up the tavern at night, you know, when I was a bartender, my buddies would come in and we'd lock the door and I'd be restocking everything. And they would put Sinatra on the jukebox, you know, come fly with me. Let's fly away. And they would fantasize, man, what would that be like, huh? Flying with Frank Sinatra and then all that kind of stuff. And then years later, I was pinching myself. I'm in his private jet. We're flying around the country. I, I, I'll tell you a great story that is in my book that 
I'll never forget. I had a street buddy. He passed away now. He was a, a tough kid, had a tough childhood, was in the 101st Airborne later on. We all went in the military, different parts of the military. But anyhow, uh, tough guy. Didn't take anything from anybody anywhere. When I first went to Las Vegas and I was opening for San Diego Senior, first time I ever went to Vegas, a couple of my street buddies came in and would be there. And the next morning after opening night, we were, we were going to go out and walk along the strip. And my buddy, who, I mean, he was a tough kid. I, he, I didn't find, I said, where do you go? Where the hell is it? TJ was his nickname. I said, well, TJ, oh, he was standing in front of the marquee that said Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Reese. And I went, I said, Tommy, and TJ, his nickname. But I said, TJ, let's, let's go. He had tears rolling down his cheeks. I said, what, what, are you all right? He said, don't you get it? You don't get it. If your name is up there, the whole neighborhood is up there. <laughs> well, up there, you know. I, I just never forgot that. You know, that was such a, a touching moment. Here. Well, that's what I love about the Midwest. I mean, I'm a North Coast guy, Pennsylvania, growing up in Ohio and Chicago. It's the same thing. You don't like, like you alluded to earlier. You don't look back, but you never forget where you came from. Uh, I probably it's probably one of my favorite quotations. When somebody does say that, they back home they'll say. You know, he's so-and-so, so-and-so, but he never forgot where he came from. If you had eight brothers and sisters and you lived in a shack and there was no bathtub and no shower and no hot water and, and you, you had holes in your shoes and <laughs> you, how can you forget where you came from? <laughs> you know, the, you know, I tell who Midwestern people are out here in California when I'd be jogging or walk, going up there on the street, if I say, good morning, and they say, good morning. They'll actually reply to you. Yeah. You know, if you, if you say good morning, out here in LA to somebody, you say, good morning. They're going, what, what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, what exactly do you want from me now? Yeah. You say, and you're in New York, you say, good morning. They say that to them, that means how long are you going to be away from your car? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with, with a little F bomb thrown in for, uh, yeah, yeah. for posterity's sake if you're in New York. So, and uh, another thing that I, uh, you know, I, I mentioned at the, the top of the show, and, and, you know, you are all comedian first and last and always, but your philanthropy work, whether it's you know, like your day for Darlene, your sister who uh, passed away from MS, but, and I love it every year and, and being Facebook friends with you and just seeing the pictures every year from the annual Thanksgiving and Christmas meals that you do down at the Laugh Factory that you and Jamie Masada that he helps, uh, helps you put on and just, you know, you're uh, bringing laughs to the, for the soul and meals for the belly. And just what has been some of the, you know, the, uh, the stories through the years for that? And uh, especially, uh, and uh, maybe just end with, uh, or just talk about Tiffany Haddish. I know she was one of the first people that, that did that. Or, uh, and, and you, you watched her grow up from there. So well, I'm sorry, just the motivation behind it, doing the, the Laugh Factory stuff. There's a, you asked three, three or four questions. And I'll yeah, I'm, I'm known to do that. <laughs> Number one. The, 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 my sister Darlene had MS. My, she was 18 months older than me. She would, I cannot remember a time in my childhood that my sister wasn't there for me. When I was a little boy, she'd hold my hand, help me across the street. She never complained about anything in her life. She, when my parents were out drinking and stuff, sometimes she had to take care of us kids. Um, and, and she did, and she never complained. And uh, about the time she started to live, she was stricken with MS. And she eventually went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair bedroom and um i went to visit her one time i was appearing in chicago and i went to visit her she'd been she was married and her husband was outside mowing the lawn and i went inside she had been in a wheelchair and she slumped over and had couldn't write herself and she was like that for a long time when i got her right you know i, I got her write it up 
this is a girl that would go to church six days a week. Um, she never complained about anything. She said to me, don't you come in here ever again, ever again, talking to me about positive mental attitude. I don't want to hear it. Don't ever talk to me again about God. She said, you've known me all my life. You've known me all my life. What did I ever do to God that God would punish me like this? Come on, you always have these answers. Give, give, give me that answer. And I was stunned because this girl never talked that way. And I didn't have an answer. And I, and I said, I, I don't know. I don't know. And she, five minutes later, she, she was crying. And she, five minutes later, she said, I'm sorry, Tommy. I lost my faith. I lost my faith. I said, if anybody deserves to lose their faith, you do. And, and I didn't know what to say. But I went back to uh, California. And I used to run like a mile every day. I just worked out. And I was running one day. And I said, i got to do something to show her that I not only I care, but a lot of people care about her and all those who have MS. And, and usually the reason why it's not, we normally have great sympathy toward childhood diseases, and rightfully so. But MS is an adult disease, so it doesn't get as much attention, you know. Well, yeah, I decided I'm going to run 26 miles. I don't only run a mile at that time. If I run 26 miles, I'll call it 26 miles for Darlene, and people will pledge money for every mile I run and will raise money for the, for the cure and for patient care. And, and then I started recruiting all my friends, and I went to the JCs back in Illinois and said, will you sponsor this? And long story short, you know, I, I got, I brought in, you know, Smokey Robinson and Frankie Avalon and Tony Danza and, and um, uh, Jamie Farr and, and uh, Betty Thomas from No Sweet Blues, Eddie Marinaro. Um, uh, I'm going to leave out some people, but so many celebrities and Chicago Cubs and Chicago Bears would come and run with me, you know. And they would run a mile or two miles or a block, whatever they could run. Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. Uh, but what, what I say is in, in this story, at one point we culminated in Park Forest, Illinois, and there was about 10,000 people there, all these thousands of people there at the culmination of the run. There was a big festival there. And they brought Darlene out, and we had written a song, uh, Smokey, um, Smokey Robinson, Frankie Avalon, sang a song that Frankie's uh, conductor, Keith Rossi, wrote called Don't Give Up. And it was a tribute to Darlene and all those with MS. And we had the Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra there, and all these stars on stage, Connie Stevens, Connie Stevens, and all these singers, Smokey and Frankie and everybody up there singing that song. And Darlene came out in the band, and she was in a wheelchair, and then they opened up the side door, and they were singing that song to her. And I told her, I said, do you remember years ago when you asked me why you, I still don't know why you, but I know because of you, 10,000 people today are singing this song to you. She said, no, no, Tommy, not because of me, because of you. I said, no, no, because of you, because of you. All the love you gave me, all those things we learned in church, and what you sow, you shall reap. All that love you put out is now coming back to you. So that was the answer to that, that question, uh, why, why I did that. But the other thing, too, is when, I, when we were growing up so poor in that shack, there was no welfare in those days. So the civic groups, the Kiwanis, the Moose, the Elks, the JCs and stuff, every year would bring baskets of fruit and uh, turkey and ham and all these kind of uh, things to poor families. And they would bring it to the shack that we lived in. And my mother, my proud Irish mother, you know, would turn them away. She'd say, no, my husband has a job. We don't deserve that. You know, uh, later in years later, she finally accepted that charity. You know, as kids were looking, we saw there was things in that basket we never saw before. You know, but that registered in my mind that my mother was right. He had a job. He should have been taking care of us. But in those days, people helping people. If you if you 
it, it, there would no one go hungry in the neighborhood in those days because neighbors wouldn't allow that to happen. It, it, it was people helping people. That that registered in me deeply, you know. And then coming out here to the West Coast, uh, Jamie Masada every year would feed the homeless. Well, I hitchhiked up and down Sunset Boulevard years before that, you know. I would live on a dollar a day. I would go to Kentucky Colonel at the end of the day, corn and cluck for under a buck. I, I, <laughs> if I had a place like that to go and have a meal like that on Thanksgiving or Christmas, how much I would appreciate that. So I never forgot that, you know. So every year at the, the Laugh Factory for the last 40 years now, we feed the homeless on Christmas and Thanksgiving. And and, and it's, it's, it's just, I can't, I can't tell you how pleasing it is for us to feed them. And then we get up and we do, we do comedy for them. We make them laugh and you know, we do a stand-up. Um, which is one of my favorite stories is one year, Paul Mooney, Margaret Cho and me were serving. And Margaret Cho, I was on, I was on, uh, Mooney was on Turkey. I was on, Ma Ma Margaret Cho was on mashed potatoes and I was on gravy. This is what we, and two poor old homeless guys walked by, they holes in their shoes, they were walking by with the tray and looking food. And when they got to the end of the line, one of them looked at the other one, he said, they had bigger names here last year. <laughs> uh, but that was one of my favorite. Now, getting to Tiffany, every Saturday years ago, we would have what they call comedy camp at the Laugh Factory, where ghetto children, poor children, would come there and they could, we would feed them. And then, if you wanted to get up on stage, if you were eight years old or 10 years old, and you wanted to say anything, you, you didn't have to do comedy. You got to say, My brother's a brat. You know, we'd applaud. And next year, again, my name is. And my name is Sophie, and, and my brother also was a brat. But if you wanted to try to tell a joke or two, we would encourage that. And Tiffany Haddish got up, and you could say anything you want. She was just a little girl, 14 or 15 years old. And she started talking about being a foster child, and that she had these, like, four brothers and sisters, and she was the oldest. And she would have to take care of them because her parents some terrible things, you know, tragic things, you know, drugs and stuff like that. And she was left responsible. And so she would take care of these little children and um, they start putting them in foster homes. And her youngest brother, little boy, could not say Tiffany. So he called her mama. And she would tell him, she was telling this story. And she's saying, so and she would say, no, I'm not mama. I'm Tiffany. I'm Tiffany. He couldn't say Tiffany. He just kept calling her mama. One day, the foster people came and said, we have to separate you five children. We, you can't all go to one home. So they put some in one van and some in the other van. And she's telling this story, and tears are coming down my face. Even today, when I think about how it bothers me, the little boy started crying because they separated him from her. He started crying. He wanted to be with her. And he thought they were separating him because he couldn't say Tiffany. So he's hollering to her, I'll call you Tiffany. I'll call you Tiffany. And she's telling that story, and, and I mean, I, mean I, I, I was in tears, everybody else was in tears, but she told it so matter-of-factly, you know, and I just said, yeah, I, I love this little girl, and from that point on, I mentored her as much as possible. She tells people now, like a father to her, you know, now, she's, now she makes $5 million a movie, and she's a big star, and every year, her and I keep the homeless again. You know. uh, I got to tell you something funny. I can't say it the way Tiffany said it. She had a couple of boyfriends that I didn't approve of, and, and I was, and she later admitted I was right. I, I'm a street guy. I picked up on them right away. These are bad guys. She ended up getting rid of both of them, and now she's doing very well. And she had a good-looking guy with her last time I saw her, and she introduced me to him. 
and she, I can, I, how can I, she said, basically, he's like a father to me. If he doesn't like you, I don't sleep with you. <laughs> but she said it a lot more graphic. And I was so I'm guessing she said a little bit more street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she's, I, I love her to death. She's a great girl. And it's got to be cool for you to see her making that $5 million a picture. And just and, and she's just a, a runaway success in the last few years. It's been fun to watch her. I'm not Jewish, but Jewish people, I used to caddy at an all-Jewish country club. They have a wonderful expression, fell. I fell. You know, I swell with pride when I see, you know, I, I, I fell. You know, uh, that's how they say it. But, you know, but when I see her on, in movies and TV, I fell. You know, I, I have that sense of pride that God bless that little child. You're getting verklempt. Yeah, well, that's a good word. <laughs> I, I'm a Catholic guy, but I watch enough Jewish comedians. And there, there's Billy, Billy Crystal right over my, my right shoulder there. So, yeah, that's where I pick up all my Yiddish. The, the first night that I uh, auditioned for The Tonight Show, it was in, for, they were looking at three comics, a comedy team called Bob and Eston, Tom Dreesen, and a new kid named Billy Crystal. I wonder what ever happened to Billy. Jeez. Yeah, a couple of things here and there. I, I, I've, I've heard of him from time to time. So. I've seen him too, yeah. So, uh, so anything coming up? Uh, you know, getting out like uh, any charity events coming up? Any anything like uh, more more comedy nights? Well, I'm still doing my. I'm, I do a one man show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. Uh, it's a 90 minute show that I do in theaters. That um, you know, I stand up comedy, mm -hmm. and I segue to a bar where there's a bottle of Jack Daniels, playing drink of choice, and I start telling stories. You know, and uh, the I, I tell a funny story at the bar, and all the lights go out, and Frank comes on the screen singing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. So it's like he's singing to me behind the bar. And then he goes off screen and, and I tell the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, standing shoes in a bar in, in Harvey, Illinois, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy from Harvey, Illinois, hearing Sinatra on the jukebox, the one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take them on that journey. But while I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen, authenticating the stories as well as video. So it's, it's a 90-minute show that I just love doing. I've been doing that around the country. I'll be doing that some more later this year. And, and you know. Are you coming to Phoenix anytime soon? Because I would like to see that again. You know, I did you see it? I, I saw it in, in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I did it several times here, like six or seven times. I, I may. You know, I have, a, uh, I have a girlfriend there that we've been dating for years. She lives in Scottsdale. She puts on classic car shows all the time. Her name is yeah, Nancy. I've got a Scottsdale girlfriend too. Oh, do you really? Wait a minute. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you lucky guy. I you know I, I have far more respect. Remind me. I, I have far more respect for you now. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. I mean, Validation. I mean, All right. Very good. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I will keep the eyes open for Phoenix because, and, and folks, definitely check out Tom and, and wherever he may be. You got to go to a very funny man, a very generous man, philanthropist, yes, but comedian first and last and always. Tom Dreesen, thank you so much for joining us on All Over the Place. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media of Live. If you like what you've been listening to, and you know you have, be sure to share it with friends and family, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, wherever.
Project contained herein have been the opinions of the host, the producer, and the guests only. You don't listen at your own risk.